We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Releasing just in time for Dennis Hopper's birthday on the 17th and mine a couple days later, welcome to the second installment of our three-part series on the actor that's filled with analysis and appreciation of some of his most popular films and performances from a panel of outstanding guests, plus excerpts from a lifetime of interviews with Hopper voiced by yours truly. This episode covers the decade that made him an icon all over again with the film Blue Velvet. Centered on the 1980s, we open with Out of the Blue and then talk about his comeback year or his second or third comeback year of 1986 and the films Blue Velvet, River's Edge, and Hoosiers. So buckle up, it's going to be a bumpy episode. Included in today's conversation, you will hear from the following guests in alphabetical order. Jed Ayers is the author of Packerwood and Fierce Bitches and the man behind the terrific blog Hardboiled Wonderland. Mitchell Beaupre, who is the senior editor and podcast co-host at Letterboxd, as well as a critic, interviewer, and essayist at Paste Magazine, The Film Stage, and more. William Boyle is a novelist of such works as Shoot the Moonlight Out, City of Margins, A Friend is a Gift You Give Yourself, The Lonely Witness, and more. Sean Burns is a film critic for WBUR's Arts and Culture and a contributing writer at North Shore Movies and Crooked Marquee, and you can find him at splicepersonality.com. Elizabeth Cantwell is a poet and a teacher, as well as a writer and editor at Brightwall Dark Room, the online film journal. S.A. Cosby is a New York Times bestselling author of Blacktop Wasteland, Razorblade Tears, My Darkest Prayer, and the upcoming All the Sinners Bleed. And Jordan Harper is a screenwriter and producer on such shows as The Mentalist, Gotham, and Hightown, as well as the Edgar Award-winning author of She Rides Shotgun, Last King of California, and the brand new novel, Everybody Knows. 
So as Dennis Hopper might say, let's get started, man. From Dennis Hopper Interviews, edited by Nick Dawson. Excerpts from a piece by Robert Morales, dated 1983, on the changing generations and women's roles, and the fact that Out of the Blue had a strong female character at the heart of it. Quote, I think that every generation rebels against whatever generation their parents belong to. And I think that's healthy. If all of the children of the love generation came out acid heads and flower children, I think that probably would have been the end of the country. But they seem to have rebelled against that by being too conservative. And the punk movement is a reaction against conservatism. We start off with bohemianism and that became beat or the lost generation and that then became the hippies and that became punk or the new wave the rebellion whether it's punk whatever it is towards the older generation if you can survive and get through that the wants and the needs are the same and it's an attention getter and it identifies you with your group and your peers I think whatever we wanted may have changed because you only have so long to get there. I came out of abstract expressionism and jazz, which was really radical, and the civil rights movement, which was really radical, and the free speech movement, which was really radical. Besides, me trying to be an actor, trying to be responsible to that and turn shit into gold because most of my parts, unfortunately, were shit and made under very difficult circumstances, end quote. Quote, 1967, we made Easy Rider, and the whole country was burning down. There were riots in every city, and there was a war in Vietnam. The woman's role? Slyly. I'm just glad that women have gone back to wearing garter belts and stockings. I think a woman's role is whatever she wants it to be. She has to make that choice. I can't make it for her. I found working with Linda Manns and investigating that part was something that was really exciting to me, that really stimulated me to work with women, because I had never really done that before, and I would like to do a lot more of that. It's much more interesting working in those areas, trying to understand another sex, than to make the buddy movie. Not that Peter's dull. Laughter. Which I'm not saying isn't valid or I won't do it again, but it's something that I've done and being thrown into this picture and suddenly there's Linda and Sharon. That was a really far out and interesting experience. End quote. Quote. And there's a great part of me that has always been very cruel, I guess, to women because I don't understand them. And yet there's a lot of me that's very female. My curiosity has always been towards the mystery of the female. End quote. Next, Mitchell Beaupre. The next film, it was the first time I had ever seen Out of the Blue, amazingly enough. I knew the, the song, of course, and I'd heard of the movie and I kind of had some idea of what happened in the movie because so many people had told me over the years like <laughs> how shocking it was. Um, but I was totally unprepared for this. I tracked down the disc and, you know, I saw uh, presented by Natasha Leone and Chloe Sevigny and I was like, whoa, this is going to be amazing. And, 
you know, it did blow me away, but it's so shocking. I can yeah. imagine, uh, actually, I don't know that I can imagine what the reaction would have been like at Cannes when it played. I guess people were just aghast, could not figure this film out. But talk to me about Out of the Blue. Yeah, I. this is, um, I mean, I love this movie so much. I, I didn't have too much knowledge of what this movie was before the the restoration that Leon okay. and Sevigny were, you know, part of funding and getting out into the world, which was a few years ago. And it played at like one of those early pandemic festivals where they had like virtual options and they oh, had the nice. 4K restoration playing. And I, I hadn't heard of it before. And but I saw Dennis Hopper and that he directed it and starred in it. So I was like, oh, well, I'm definitely interested in seeing <laughs> that. So I paid it. I watched it. And yeah, I I was blown away by I mean, immediately I was very into it. It is sort of like framed as like a coming of age movie focused on Linda Mantis character, who's like a young girl, um, Dennis Hopper's daughter in the film. And the film yes. opens with Dennis Hopper driving, you know, a big rig truck and he drives it into a school bus full of kids, which is like yes. nuts. Like it's yeah. like absolutely nuts way to start a movie. And I then know. he goes to prison for for several years and the movie kind of picks up with following Manz's character as we know that Hopper's about to come out of prison and then he does come out and we just sort of see him like reintegrating into this family and this world through her eyes as you mentioned and yeah it's I mean it's really shocking it's really grimy it's very uncomfortable it's like one yes. of the most unnerving films I've ever seen and its My backstory God. is so fascinating that it was like originally intended just as this like family friendly drama of, like an after school yep. special about like the man's character and like her therapist and like her therapist like helping her out basically and like getting her through you know this tough time yeah. or whatever and like then an ordinary people type thing yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah exactly like ordinary people and then it just like wasn't working so they fired the director and we're gonna just bin the whole movie but hopper convince them to let him like basically start over from scratch with it, let him direct it, redo the script. And it's like a really phenomenal instance of him kind of rewriting like where he was at in his career and Hollywood's like a relationship with him too, because like you mentioned, like this was still after the last movie, which was such like a huge disaster mm -hmm. of a movie, like critically and especially financially, like people yeah. did not want to let Dennis Hopper direct another movie. <laughs> And he saw this opportunity that like they were just going to get rid of this movie. They were just going to, you know, cut their losses with it, but he could make it something. And he really like he went this like really raw direction with it. And I think that it is beautifully connected with something like Easy Rider, because I think that out of the blue takes something with Easy Rider. I think there was this thing where like it it drew up this idea of like the counterculture in America in a mm -hmm. way that really like mythologized it and made people like it romanticized like the counterculture and even like the most like straight laced yuppie conservatives like got went out and got a motorcycle and were like, I'm going to be like an easy rider. You know, they probably yeah. didn't pay too much attention to the ending of the movie. But like there's that that scene in uh, Lost in America where like they get pulled over by the cop and like the way that they like get on his Didn't side see by, easy rider yes exactly yeah. um and i think that out of the blue does this great job of like showing the the opposite kind of side of that mm -hmm. where like the counterculture is actually you know it can go too far it can be yeah. really scary it can fuck things up it can fuck up this young girl's life to yes. such 
a severe level because these people are not in control of themselves like whatsoever hopper and like his group that he runs with her mother like they are really mm-hmm. worried to buy you know what their lifestyle has been at this point and i think that hopper just does such a great job with this movie of like trojan horsing this dark twisted tale into something that at first feels like a coming of age you know sort of story like an ordinary people absolutely yeah and it's kind of a film about performance a little Mm -hmm. bit like in that first scene you know manza's character is dressed like a clown and she also is kind of you know when you are a teen you're sort of trying on different identities and she likes elvis and john Mm -hmm. rotten and all the different things but and then by the end of the movie she's gone completely punk but it's a little bit of trying on these rebellious personas. So at first you think you're watching a coming of age movie, and then you think you're watching a revenge movie, the more you Mm -hmm. learn about it. And so it's also just about um, popular culture and exactly what you were saying with easy writers. So there's that element too about the adult characters and then how it trickles down with the children, which I find fascinating. Yeah. 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 And it really gets into like, there's, he doesn't come out of prison for a while into the movie, which I love because you get like, you get to settle in with man's and like what her lifestyle has been like and her relationship with her mother and Mm -hmm. her mother's relationship with one of Hopper's friends who is like clearly coming on to her and like, she's, you know, cool with that and everything. And then Hopper comes out and there's such like a huge shift in the energy of the movie once he comes out and there's that danger that comes like laced back into it. And he's really on like a knife's edge. And the final like 15 minutes or so of the movie are when like it really just like hits hard and you realize like just fully how far gone like this family is. And it's so shy. Like when I, I remember when I first see it, just being so like bowled over by how depraved it ends up getting and how oh shocking God, it I is. Know. But then when you watch it again, it like it's very impressive how much that feels that turn feels completely inevitable. Like it it is perfectly laced how much it feels like it's going in that direction, even though it's such like a horrific kind of climax that you can never really fully imagine it until it happens, but it feels inevitable. It does. And it makes some of the line readings uh, from earlier suddenly, Mm -hmm. you know, hit differently a little bit. Also watching it, I think not too long after I revisited the suite hereafter for the podcast, I was thinking about um, some of the elements, spoiler alert, that involve, um, you know, incest and abuse and um, sexual abuse. And also with the bus accident, there's there's this thing yeah, right? that, that's yeah. happening. And so you kind of wondered, um, I don't remember exactly when Sweet Hereafter was published, but I do think it was in the late 80s. I'll have to double check. And yeah. so I was wondering if Russell Banks had seen this movie or if it was just in the back of his mind or maybe not. But yeah, that interesting that um, this would make one really twisted double feature. That's, yeah, that's I didn't even think especially with the bus accident. I really didn't think about that. But that's that's a perfect yeah. double feature. Yeah. Yeah. I love I love that Out of the Blue now has like it has the disc release, too, and everything. And it is a movie that really wasn't super available for such a long time. But hopefully with that new 4K restoration, people can check it out because I think that it is one of like his most underrated movies, especially as a director, I think that it's just absolutely like extraordinary. From Dennis Hopper Interviews, edited by Nick Dawson, a piece written by Louis Archibald in 1983. Quote, 
Hopper admits that in directing this film, I borrowed from a lot of people. I mean, there's a scene with a taxi cab driver that I think of as Ingmar Bergman. And I went back to Henry Hathaway, for whom Hopper had worked in three Westerns, including True Grit. He actually gives actors line readings. So I'd give Linda Mann's move by move direction, put the lipstick on, put it down, lift this up, get up, turn twice, you know. I had only four weeks and two days to shoot the film, the director adds. I did every trick I could possibly think of, and I shot it in such a way that it couldn't really be changed in editing, an old John Ford trick. But it was also the first time I'd ever been able to see my film on a daily basis. When we shot Easy Rider, we were traveling across the country, and when I got back, I saw 32 hours of film or whatever, instead of seeing it every night. And when I came back from Peru with the last movie, I saw 42 hours of film. Normally, you see it the next day. You see what you shot the day before, and you say to an editor, give me that two shot, give me that close up, give me that long shot, give me a shot of the fire hydrant, because you remember everything you shot. And so when you come out of the finished shoot, rather than having 32 hours of film, you've got three and a half hours you can look at. So I edited Blue in six weeks rather than the year and a half it took on Easy Rider or the two years it took on Last Movie. And that at least proves something to me because the thing that was, well, Hopper can't edit. He takes too long. And that was never the problem, really. The problem was getting someone to look at the film. Hopper's close friend Jack Nicholson saw it, called it a masterpiece. He even did a radio commercial for it. And with Warren Beatty's help, tried to interest the majors. But they weren't picking up much that was independent then. The film was ready three years ago and was shown at Cannes in 1980. And after that, it languished until Discovery Films, a small company, decided to give it a try. End quote. Later in the same article, talking about the last movie, quote, After that job, I had a really difficult time of it. I don't think anybody would really trust me with a final cut. He didn't really have final cut on Blue either. They wanted to think Easy Rider was a fluke, and they didn't see any merit in last movie. But I think I have two things which are my fortes. One is my knowledge of art visual art, my eye and my photography, and my working with actors. Those are my strong areas. I give my actors a lot of input, Hopper adds, because that's all you have on your screen is people. It's like Ingmar Bergman says, if you're supposed to have a coffee mug and you cast a Victorian cup, then you've got the wrong mug. You might as well forget it because actors are like photographing objects and yet you want real emotions from them. You want them to be that person. So that means that you really have to get very involved with these people, understand them, and try to get as deep as you can into them. I do, and I use as much of them as I possibly can. Put them and their problems, whatever they have, into the film. End quote. Next, William Boyle. Out of the Blue, extraordinary film, uh, tremendous yeah. performances uh, throughout, especially Linda Mann's. I know this one means a lot to you, so I wanted you to kick things off here. Yeah, I mean, um, 
I can't remember when the first time I saw this was, but um, it was definitely like a bootleg kind of copy of it because it was largely unavailable for, yeah. for a long time. Um, and immediately I was like, this is one of my favorite movies ever. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I love Linda Manns and I think she's she's incredible in it. And it's just, you know, the the line from easy rider to this is is just so fascinating um really and, and is. the fact the fact that it's kind of i mean you can see the bones of what this this movie was it was just like you know a, a troubled kid tv movie sort of thing that that um hopper just kind of tore up and, and made into this i know i read punk. about that yeah they, they were gonna like you know fire the director and the movie was and Nope, he took it over and rewrote it for Linda Manns with her personality. Yeah. And boy, did he change it from a movie about a therapist for sure. <laughs> it's yeah. crazy. And and again, you know, I mean, um, I mean, her performance is everything in this movie. It's just kind of just just uh so much fun. I mean, even though it's a it's a difficult, unsettling, upsetting movie oh in gosh. so many ways. Um she it's is really so much hard fun to watch. watch. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It it's a stressful one. It's I think you you made a really good point when you said you can see the line from this to Easy Rider and how interesting it is because it's kind of about that generation and some of the, you know, the dark side of that generation. I think it's easy to just assume, ooh, you know, it was beautiful and everybody with free yeah. love and you know, that can be taken way too far. And where do people have boundaries and yeah, the stuff that happens in this one is shocking indeed. Yes. It is, yeah. And and again, um, you know, the 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 music in it is so is so key and and yeah. I, I don't know, it's it's definitely one of my favorite representations of just kind of like what it is to be an alienated, lost, fucked up teenager. Um, you know, and she's just so she's incredible. And you know, the, the Neil Young yeah. songs in it. And the kind of you know just the balance of all the the music, all the pop culture too, yeah, the, the way she's trying on identities, yeah, like Elvis and you know Johnny Rotten and trying on different personas, like you do when you are a teen, like oh that actor is cool or that musician, yeah. and I want to be like that, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much. I mean, you know, and and kind of stuff that doesn't seem to fit in some ways, and then it it does, but it does. Um, but yeah, the the Neil Young songs, the, the Elvis, all the Elvis stuff, the, all the punk stuff. I mean, it's just such a, it's such a, it's such a wild and kind of raw movie, um, and and totally in. I mean, it's total. Those three movies are totally in line with each other. I think you know, Easy Rider, yeah. last movie, Out of the Blue, and, and there's that big gap between the last movie and Out of the Blue, but. For me, it kind of feels like he just picks up in some, right where he some was. ways. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing lost there as far as his his vision of what he wants to do or be as a as a director. I think so. Um, and it's another movie where, like this this recent restoration of it, is just so gorgeous. I mean, it's a movie that went incredible, from yeah, existing that's... in like really crappy copies to being just a, a, looking like another movie. I mean, it's just incredibly beautiful now to look at yeah thank you to natasha leone and chloe sevigny for restoring it the new edition is gorgeous there's a 4k 
um, yeah. disc. There's a Blu-ray. It's quite quite the release for sure. Yeah, and I think it's still I think it's still playing. They're still playing it in theaters around the country. Um, okay. I think I just saw that they're uh, doing some more screenings in New York and elsewhere. Um, I mean, it's one of my regrets is not having caught it on the big screen. Actually, I was in Paris one time and I missed it by a day. I wanted to see it there and I missed it in New York by a day. Mm. Um, so I've, get I've watched it. Yeah, I, hope, <laughs> I hope I get to see it on the big screen because it really is. I mean, you know, the ending of the movie is really difficult to, to yeah, watch. Um, very much. And you know that's going to that stick kinda, with you forever yeah <laughs> yeah but other than that i mean it is it, it does you know there's so much about it that is very rewatchable um mm-hmm. you know particularly her her performance and just kind of the way she carries herself through the first you know hour and 10 minutes yeah. of the movie before that kind of yeah very brutal, much brutal ending next up elizabeth cantwell <laughs> I do think um, the the other film I would bring up for him, and I don't know if you're talking to anyone else about this on this podcast, but the Osterman Weekend I think is um, just a weird, fun movie, and he's you know weird and good in that. Nobody has mentioned it so far, so that's great. Wow. Yeah, I like the Osterman Weekend. I mean, it's probably not. I haven't seen it in a while, I... but I remember it being one of those strange. 80s movies where it's so it's voyeuristic and weird and everybody's kind of there's that great mustache yeah anyway Mm -hmm. I love that movie and I think Dennis Hopper is pretty weird and cool in it excellent so check out the Osterman weekend if you're listening to this and haven't seen it from Dennis Hopper interviews edited by Nick Dawson a piece from author Alex Simon from 2008 wherein he begins with quote Question. In 1986, you had a renaissance in your career with three amazing movies, River's Edge, Blue Velvet, and Hoosiers, the last of which earned you an Oscar nomination. It marked a real comeback in your career, and you haven't stopped working since. Answer. That was my first year of sobriety, too. I'd been out of rehab like two months when I went in to do Blue Velvet, Then I went straight to Indiana and did Hoosiers. I didn't do anything but get a haircut and put on some different wardrobe. Then came back to Los Angeles and did River's Edge. It's funny because I play a drug addict in one, an alcoholic in the other, and a drug dealer in the third. So my first year of sobriety was a test. End quote. Next up, S.A. Cosby. The very first performance of Hopper that I really remember kind of blowing me away, which I think is a lot of people's um, performance they remember, is is Blue Velvet. Obviously, he's just he's just incredible in Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet, the movie itself, always felt like something I shouldn't be watching. I first saw it when I was sixteen, yeah. And, uh, it was in a, a a retro, it was in a retro theater, so they were replaying it from its original theatrical run. And uh, me and a bunch of friends went and, uh, you know, it felt like this is a, a this is not even a grown up movie. This is something dark. This is something very twisted and we shouldn't be watching it. But at the same time, you can't look away. And with Hopper, you know, he's this he's this incredibly evil, incredibly d- d- destructive force. But at the same time, he played Frank Booth with this sort of weird vulnerability that existed in him that 
mm-hmm. that I think the best villains are able to tap into. And uh, and, I, and he just he made you feel like you're watching the the, the dissolution of a person on screen. You know, yeah. and 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 he it made you feel like you were watching someone completely collapse on screen. And I thought he did that with such pathos and humanity, but also such an intense violence and twisted sexuality and sensuality. And it's just, I don't think there are any other actors that could have pulled that off and made it not made it believable. He never strays into cartoonishness. There's always that sense of danger. But then, like I said, again, it's also that sensitivity that exists in the performance. From Dennis Hopper interviews edited by Nick Dawson. Excerpts from a piece by Chris Hodenfield, dated 1986. Quote, suddenly this year, he is the hardest working man in show business. Here he is as Frank Booth in blue velvet, viciously inhaling on a gas mask as he sexually mauls Isabella Rossellini, being so damn creepy and vile and violent that just by the force of his voice and the threat of his suddenness, he makes the moviegoer sink down in his seat. Later, he plants a nasty kiss on the face of the way-faced protagonist, played by Kyle MacLachlan, and hisses, In dreams I walk with you. It is the voice that promises the flash of a razor. When I saw the movie, three women walked out of the theater during the scene. I don't know where Frank Booth came from, David Lynch says. He just appeared one day. There's nobody that I based anything on. For me, he's like an archetype. He's a guy I somehow know from small towns. He's an American heavy. He has to be American, and he has to come from either a desert small town or a Midwestern small town. And he just started talking, and I started writing. I never knew who was going to play this part. I interviewed lots and lots of people, including Bobby Vinton, the singer who had a hit with Blue Velvet in 1962. And they were real keen to play the part. One guy who I really wanted to play it before Dennis came along kept saying, I don't know how I could play someone so horrible, but then I don't know how I could turn this part down. I couldn't believe he wouldn't commit to it if he loved it so much. But it was just fate buying time for me. For it was Dennis Hopper who brought Frank Booth to skin-crawling life. Dennis had been on earlier lists, Lynch says. But because of his reputation, I never even thought twice about him. Because if I thought about him, I'd freak out and want to work with him no matter what he was doing. But then I heard that he was totally on the wagon and had cleaned up his act. I got real excited. His manager said, David, look, please talk to the producers who've worked with him recently. They'll tell you he's fantastic. I wouldn't tell you this if it weren't true. Dennis is in love with life. He's really got it together and he really loves this part. And can we have Dennis call you? I said, sure. Dennis called up and said, I've got to play this part, David, because I am Frank. And that almost killed it right there. Dennis is the only guy who could have played that part. What he offered was the life of Frank Booth. You see a much more complicated Frank and a guy who definitely has so much love. 
and maybe it's twisted love and complicated emotions going on inside this guy. So you say, this is not a one note person. This is a person who's very complete, although very dangerous at the same time. He's got so much power and he's got a quality like Jack Nicholson has. And that is you can't stop watching the guy. He's got a presence. A punch in the nose is one thing, but a thought introduced into the mind lasts so long. It doesn't seem to shake loose. And Frank seems to understand these things. My first impression of Dennis? Well, he's one suave fucker. That's what Frank says to Ben, Dean Stockwell. That's Frank too. End quote. Next up, Jordan Harper. Lynch, <laughs> Lynch has talked a lot about uh, you know, Dennis Hopper playing this role of Frank. And, you know, the story he tells is that uh, Hopper was coming out of an era when he was unemployable. Yes. Uh, because of his hungers and his his problems. Mm-hmm. And that he got a hold of, of the Blue Velvet script, which is also a, a rebirthing script for Lynch, who was coming off of Dune and the failure of Dune. And he was having a renewal and he had gone back to like the source of what he does best and written the script for Blue Velvet. And Hopper came to him and said, I am Frank. You have to let me play Frank, which is mm-hmm. a terrifying statement for somebody to say if you. If yes. Of Frank. But, um, you know, uh, Lynch did his research and found out that Hopper had reformed and was at least for that period of time sober, I believe, or at least together enough to, to for Lynch to put his faith in him. And, you know, the result is a is a rebirth for both of them. And it's, uh, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time. And and his performance of, of Frank is fascinating because it's terrifying. Yeah. And yet it's also deeply sympathetic, not because he does something to, like, temper his evil. He doesn't really. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, even when he shows a little bit of kindness of, uh, okay, let her see the kid. It's That's it. Just let her see the kid. Like, it's not some <laughs> great gift. It's not like he, oh, he cares about the, the motherhood. No, he is. But I do believe it is because um, he is a character who is so enthralled to his passions and his desires that you can't help but sympathize with him, even though he is I mean, truly monstrous. Um and that to me is is the exact kind of um performance that that well it was that that for me is the ultimate for for hopper is that performance uh and and also one of the great villain performances because i are you rooting for him i don't know if you're rooting for him but that's sort of a very movie executive way to ask the question of do you want to see this guy on screen and the answer is yes you want to see him <laughs> quote Roy Orbison and and ask, do you know what a love letter is? And, you know, uh, you know, debase himself in sex. You know, the the fact that the the, the sex in Blue Velvet is, is debasing for everyone involved is, is part of what makes it compelling. And, and his vulnerability, even while he's being cruel, I think, is what gets that movie through, where if his performance and that was icy or just clearly that of just a, a a sadist with no other layers to it. It would it would be a completely different film, and I think a film that would be much less successful. So I think to me that is like that's the epitome of what Dennis Hopper does. Yeah, absolutely. It is a terrifying. Uh, I mean, just his first scene in the film. Mm-hmm. I don't know many other actors that can pull that off. Really, yeah. Oh yeah, and and again, just the the 
the fearlessness of, 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 you know, being able to, to just, I won't imitate it, but, you know, call out for <laughs> mommy the way mm-hmm. he does and not have it be a joke. I mean, I have been to screenings of Blue Velvet where people laugh in certain parts of the movie and I have wanted to rise up from my seat and, and take those people apart. But like, um, do you think it's out of discomfort though, just because it's like, you don't know what to do with your emotions? There, that I think is, I don't know if that's true of all movie audiences. But, um, <laughs> that's true. Yes. But no, no, no. The cynical audiences. That, yes. that, that there is a Los Angeles New Beverly theater the... style. There's lots of great people who go to New Beverly. I oh, yeah, New yeah. Beverly. But Travis goes. Me. Yeah. But there is a type of person who goes to those repertory screenings. And I, I feel like they're getting rarer, but who are so aghast at the display of emotion that they will laugh at things that aren't funny at all, including, you know, the climactic moments. I was at a movie theater uh, when they were playing Blue Velvet and in the climactic moments when she comes out, you know, naked and bruised and yeah. weeping and people were just laughing. And I, Oh my gosh. I, I really just want to go. Why? Like what's, what is funny what here? Is, mm-hmm. And I do, I do think it's true that I think Lynch and a lot of other people, but like Lynch is somebody who, who doesn't, you know, put a lid on emotion, put a filter on it. And I think the modern style leans so heavily towards muting emotions, mm-hmm. covering things up, not letting people weep or cry. It's why people laugh in Mandy when Nick Cage is 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 grieving and drinking. And it's it's big. And people people's instant reaction to bigness now uh, of emotions is to laugh or to shut down. And I think you're right. It's a form of shutting down and not dealing, of not letting the the film wash over you and if i hadn't seen it you know if it was just that movie you go okay maybe this movie hasn't aged well but i've just seen it so many times with this Uh, particular kind of audience of um that that sometimes for a while i wouldn't go to the new beverly because of it um i've reformed and I, i will go um and again i think that i think audiences as la is building a better repertory theater scene for a long time it was the new beverly was doing so much of the heavy lifting itself and now los angeles is becoming a much better repertory theater city i think maybe people are are getting more used to going to movies and also if we ever talked about this my new theory that i espouse all the time is that every single movie made before 2010 is retroactively getting better with every passing year i agree with you yes you know, because you can watch a movie now that that from, you know, 2007, 1993, and just be amazed at the variety and style and different types of movies. And you're so excited that somebody made a movie like this, which in 1993 would be commonplace, but now would seem outlandish and out of place that it just has made it makes all movies better. <laughs> and it's um, probably a very dire and, and good movies are being made now, too. I'm not but less good movies are being made now and less variety of movies, particularly in America are being made. Um, And I think as as people are starting to recognize, you know, those big loud moments were also the big fun moments, the big meaningful moments, like, Mm -hmm. you know, and I also think, you know, I think particularly if maybe somebody isn't educated about David Lynch, they might not realize that he is both in on the joke and not making a joke at the same time that he you know, he knows what is happening is big and loud and like he wants it that way. And if it makes you uncomfortable, that's part of the experience. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think maybe people. It's a form of faux sophistication to, yeah. to 
chuckle at something, you are placing yourself above it. Like, oh, ha, ha, ha. Mm-hmm. look at this silly artist who's having this guy pours his heart out while quoting, you know, Roy Orbison lyrics and and yelling Paps Blue Ribbon. And isn't that funny? And I think David Lynch knows that it's funny and also doesn't deny like the emotion and import the behind pathos. it. The pathos. Yeah. yeah. That it can be yeah. both things. Yeah. Sorry. It's- no, I think the bigness point was really good too. And he brought up Dean because Dean is bigger. And so watching Dean today, people are like, oh, what a horrible actor. Or, oh, what is he doing? Or over the top. Like I'm watching Giant right now because I'm preparing for an episode on George Stevens. And it's also perfect because Hopper is in this movie as well. And he was also in Rebel Without a Cause. But kind of that style of acting, you can kind of see Hopper carrying that forward uh, for sure. And also, um, Hopper is good at these moments, which we have in Blue Velvet from Dennis Hopper interviews edited by Nick Dawson. Quote, David Lynch is wonderful to work with. He knows what he wants. There was no improvisation on Blue Velvet. That was all line by line stuff. The work was very demanding, but Isabella was very free, very open. And it was just wonderful. Like, a nice picnic in the park. The thing I was worried about with David, but I trusted him because I really respect his films, I felt I was reaching an area there was no coming back from. I thought I got so high and to that emotional level so quick and so soon in the movie, there's not going to be any color to the part. It was just going to be a one-dimensional thing, just screaming, screaming, screaming from beginning to end. When I saw it put together, it didn't really work out that way. There are different colors. It's not just a one-note thing. End quote. Next, Mitchell Beaupre. His performance in Blue Velvet works so well because he never like removes himself so much that he forgets that it's like he's playing a real person still. And you can still somehow feel like empathy for a guy like Frank Booth to some degree, who's like, it's a total monster that he's playing, but there's still a guy there. And like, there's such like a sadness and an ache inside of him that he channels. And I think it's because Hopper has so much pain in his own life too, that he really just brings with him through everything. But like, I love the idea. The thing that I always come back to with Hopper is this idea of like controlled chaos where Mm -hmm. he is so chaotic. He is a guy that you can't pin down at all as an actor, but he knows, you know, what what he's giving and what's coming next and what he's working with. And it's that thing where you can have an actor who wants to be wacky and chaotic and like all over the place and like really like frightening and menacing but he goes like too far to the point where it just feels like scattered and erratic with no sense of purpose but everything that hopper does is so purposeful and blue velvet is like i mean the the core of that right where like everything is is it's frightening it's a character that keeps you up at night and like from the second that there's like very rarely as effective an entrance for a character as frank booth in blue velvet where oh my god immediately the the tone of the movie shifts from like going from seeing kyle mclaughlin and isabella rossellini in this odd you know sexual exchange that is like it's erotic it's a little like unnerving it's un- uncomfortable but in mm-hmm. like a sort of like arousing way and then hopper comes into the picture and you're like oh there's nothing erotic or arousing no. about what's going on here anymore <laughs> this is fucking frightening this is the it, worst it is. mistake this kid's ever made in his life going into yeah. this apartment 
<laughs> it is. He's kind of like um, controlled chaos, what you were saying. He's sort of like a jack in the box where you don't know when he's going to spring up. Yeah. But when he does, he is a human mood ring. As soon as yeah. he enters, like whatever mood he's in, that's where the film is going. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, you know, he is just terrifying. But then there are scenes where, like, he's in the club with the dude has mommy issues up the wazoo where he's watching her perform Blue Velvet and he's like sobbing and holding onto the robe belt and it's very kinky and strange and and sad and it's yeah. just so strange it's uh, a surrealistic performance i mean that's uh, surrealism and david lynch but this is one fucked up film and uh <laughs> David Lynch, uh, David Lynch kind of trusts in Hopper and Hopper is sort of the conductor of this movie. Mm. He's able to sort of be the person guiding, I think, in these scenes, the other actors. And you can see them off balance and you can see them respond to them uh, to what he is doing. I can't even imagine like the scene in the car, how that was to be in that <laughs> whole like, first of all, to be trapped in that situation anyway. But then with yeah. Dennis Hopper, where you don't know what he's going to do next. I mean, I can't even. Yeah. 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 And I think I think part of how he was able to perfect it, too, is that like when he did this at this point when he did this and river's edge he was like so he had been sober for like a year and a half or like two yeah. years at this point like he he went to rehab like pretty bad in the early 80s and came out and was sober when he was doing it so like he he had the soberness to have that sort of like presence of mind of yeah. navigating the performance but also Strasberg and the method like the backstory and the background of everything that he had gone through where he could understand a character like frank booth in a way that all these other actors who were wanted to play Frank Booth, like, you know, we did an episode on Willem Dafoe and Willem Dafoe, you know, was one yeah. of the ones like in running for Frank Booth. And I'm sure he would have been great, but he didn't have the background that Dennis Hopper had to understand who this dude was. And the fact that like he had to really sell himself to David Lynch too, that like to, to play the role, but Lynch trusted him and knew that like from having conversations with this guy, that's who Frank Booth was, was what Dennis Hopper was going to bring. And like he brought knowledge that Lynch didn't have the fact that like Frank Booth was originally supposed to be huffing helium and they tried to play it and it sounded ridiculous and Hopper knew it was ridiculous and Hopper was like the one who was like this is not this is not what this guy would be doing like this is mm -hmm. not how this would work and that's how the switch happened and like yeah I just feel like he he understands this character on such an innate level that makes it so much more frightening because it feels like a real dude rather than an actor playing a villain. It just feels like a guy who actually exists and is going to fuck up your entire life. Yes. Next, Sean Burns. I was talking about this with Walter. We figured out we both think my science project is our first Hopper movie, but he didn't really register. For me, I saw Blue Velvet when I was way too young. I think I even saw it before I saw Hoosiers. <laughs> Same year. Which really like throws Hoosiers in a whole different register. <laughs> <laughs> the whole time when you're watching Hoosiers, you're like waiting for Frank Booth to come out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And there was that era where I was like in junior high and watching movies. I was way too young to be watching. And like that was the time Hopper was in um, Blue Velvet and River's Edge around that time. And those were the VHS tapes. Yeah, that we just like passed around, you know, like cigarettes. It was just like, oh, you gotta watch this. this <laughs> you know, those are two of my like dating red flag movies. I mean, they're great fucking movies, but they're like. <laughs> 
You, we really want to dial into how are men talking about these movies? Do they get a little too starry-eyed, you know, about Frank Booth or the Hopper roles, or is it the performance? You know, sack, like, yeah, the sex doll. <laughs> <laughs> I just rewatched uh, *River's Edge* actually for for this project. Yeah. Oh, I haven't seen it in years. How does it? How does it hold up? You know, I hadn't seen it since the nineties. I. Mm-hmm. I got a lot more out of it now because back then it just totally terrified me it terrified me (laughs) now but it seems more um i guess apropos of it it's still timely i guess yeah it's very eerie you should check it out i'm gonna be talking (laughs) about it with mitchell beaupre jordan harper a couple other people yeah oh yeah that sounds like a jordan movie (laughs) it's a total jordan movie jordan would have been one of those kids man yeah i was just like oh my god that's george mcfly (laughs) oh yeah i mean hopper was just at that point you know i was like 12 or 13 and he was just like the icon of well this was the coolest then you find out oh my god he was a rebel without a cause and he got got kicked out of hollywood then he came back and took it over then he got himself kicked out again and then when i got a little older one of the ones that got passed around was out of the blue I just saw that for the first time, actually, a few days ago, and holy shit, yes. What a fucking movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, oh my god, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I just still remember that tape on the shelves of just, like, Linda Manns in black and white, like, staring out from you in this picture, and it was just like, (laughs) I don't know if I want to rent that. But yeah, watching him, yeah, God, what a... So yeah, he was just the super... And then that was around the same time Then he directed Colors. Oh yeah, I remember that. Pac-Man! Yeah. (laughs) And I don't know, sometime after that he became like this annoying, campy Republican, but he was still fun to watch. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the Hopper of Speed and Waterworld I enjoy, but he's not the guy from those formative movies I was just messaging, you know, as you know. Yeah, he's really funny in speed, but he's not particularly frightening. (laughs) Yeah, although I was talking about this with Elizabeth Cantwell, there's a little bit of Frank Booth in his character in speed. You know, don't fuck with daddy. You kind of wonder, was that Dennis Hopper adding that, or was that in the script there a little bit? I mean, that was just his default to be called daddy. I'm I'm thinking, yeah, (laughs) I don't want to think about it, but I'm thinking about it, yes. Did you ever see the SNL sketch of Frank Booth's What's That Smell? Or it's like a game show. <laughs> he hosts a game show and everyone has to guess what he's making them smell. <laughs> yeah, it's a funny uh, dude. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, so Blue Velvet is a film that you saw in middle school. I know we've talked about it on the podcast, I think as far back as like the first episode you ever did. We, um, You told me about getting the t-shirt, so let's you know so people don't have to go cue <laughs> yeah, that one up <laughs> tell us the story again Sean. go for yeah, it yeah so what happened was i bought this t-shirt and it was a blue velvet t-shirt and on the front of it was a black and white picture of frank booth with the oxygen mask and at the bottom it said don't you fucking look at me <laughs> so i like i like wear it to all the cool like keg parties and stuff in high school and you know my shirt said fuck on it and, and you know the people <laughs> who'd seen blue velvet, that was a cool way to like figure out who was cool or not yeah because Everyone who recognized the shirt and said, awesome, man, was someone you wanted to hang out with. Yeah. Maybe you really didn't want to hang out with them, but you know, at the time. <laughs> yeah. 
It was a good way and, to kind uh, of weed through the people. Yeah. But my mother just hates that word. <laughs> she oh. just <laughs> she can't stand. I remember she like wanted to leave Beverly Hills Cop because they were saying the F word too much. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> so that I had that shirt, it drove her crazy, but she couldn't throw it out because I bought it with my own money. So when she did laundry, she would hide it somewhere in the house. And then it became like a little game where (laughs) it just after (laughs) me tearing through like everything, trying to fill. I was always like under the bed or, you know, beside (laughs) the laundry machine or, you know, oh, I must have fallen out of the basket. Yeah. I have no idea where it went, Sean. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was telling her about this. She asked, she said, do you still have that shirt? I said, Jesus Christ, look at me. (laughs) (laughs) I was 15. I don't think I could fit in my clothes for that. <laughs> you didn't I also have think I wore, it until the whole, oh. I wore it until the whole thing flaked off, you know, the way those gotcha. t-shirts. Did. Yeah. Exactly. So do you remember that first experience watching it and anything? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing was, you've been, been hearing about that movie. It was all like grown-ups were talking about. Like, it was like on the radio and stuff. All the DJs would joke about it. Whenever someone said something dirty, they'd be like, ooh, is that from Blue Velvet? <laughs> and there was an article in Premiere magazine about the guys who dubbed movies for the TV versions. And for a sample, they had the uh, the scene where he first meets Dean Stockwell, that here's to your fuck, Frank. Yeah, and they had on one column of the article the uh, the the regular dialogue from the movie, and then the TV version was on the other side. And it was like, "Here's to your freak, Frank." <laughs> and one of my <laughs> friends was so captivated by this, he was like, "We're renting that movie as soon as we can." So there was oh, it was this convoluted scheme where we had to like we had to go to the video store that would rent us R-rated movies and get it, and then we like snuck in into his house when his parents were away or something, or maybe somewhere where he was babysitting. But you know. And when, we were like 12, so when it was over, there, we had no idea what we just watched. <laughs> it was just like, I don't know, what, what the fuck was that? I don't know, let's watch it again. Yeah, rewind. <laughs> yeah, I remember my uncle Terry is this very mild-mannered, polite veterinarian, had seen it in the theater and was obsessed with it. He time, oh you know, I was always like the movie kid. And, oh, he, you know, he was always like, well, what you got to see when you can is Blue Velvet. And then so finally, I remember like that Thanksgiving, I was like, Terry, I saw Blue Velvet. He's like, isn't it the greatest? Don't you fucking look at me. <laughs> All of a sudden, you see your uncle in a new light. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what other movies do you like? <laughs> <laughs> I had an uncle and aunt like that who loved uh, the thief cook, his wife, her lover. And you would never guess from looking at them <laughs> or whatever. And, um, like, he used to talk about this movie obsessively. And it was like, when I finally, what is up with Uncle Joel? Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I I had a a chemistry teacher when I was in, like, a sophomore in high school who was obsessed with Peter Greenaway. And he, like, loaned me, like, Belly of an Architect, (laughs) Drowning (laughs) by Numbers. And and now I think you get fired for that. I think so, yeah. (laughs) There'd be an investigation, yes. (laughs) It's like, is this pornography? Well, it's an English art film. I don't know. It's it's Brian (laughs) British, yeah. Exactly. Uh, So Dennis Hopper is a force in this movie. My God. 
talk to me about there's the nothing like it when he walks in i mean i'll tell i've seen blue velvet in the theater so many times i'll see it every time it plays but there was one time in high school i remember going to see it and uh was at one of our repertory theaters and i went with a bunch of my high school friends and there was this you know an older guy who's probably our age now yeah. When the, when the movie was over, he was just leaning against like a rail on the side of the theater, <laughs> shaking his head. <laughs> and all of us, like 15, 16 year olds, come bounding out. And the guy's just, I remember this little guy with a big beard, and he's like, Jesus Christ, like, are you kids okay? And we're like, we're great. We've seen it like 15 times. <laughs> oh, man. And I watched, I, I saw it at the Coolidge a couple years ago, and I was surrounded by all these younger folks I know in their early 20s, and they'd never seen it. You know, they all, it's weird how everyone gets into Lynch now through Mulholland Drive, and it's a whole different yeah. Lynch experience. Mm-hmm. And just none of them, I love the temperature in the room when you're watching that movie, because no one knows how to react. Because, like, it's funny, but they're scared, and they're kind of horny. <laughs> 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 like I don't know if That's I'm turned on combo. or not. Yeah. Am I allowed to be turned on? What's happening? <laughs> it might but be yeah, new therapy. Yeah. That first scene when he walks in, he's like, "It's baby, you fucker." You know, it's daddy. <laughs> like, I mean, it's like it's like this serrated energy that just cuts through the screen. And this movie's been so mild and kind of jokey, and everyone's so, you know, northwestern nice. I'm like, oh, that's a human ear, all right. <laughs> And then, yeah, I mean, it's almost so... like it's from the 50s, basically. Yeah. <laughs> but like Hopper is so frightened when he's just standing still, he's vibrating. Like yes. <laughs> Even just watching her in the club, it's just yeah. terrifying. It's so intense. Yes. Yeah, he just radiates this energy. It's like no other screen villain I've seen it. And he's like <laughs> pathetic and silly. Like Frank's like this big dork. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll fuck anything that moves. And then two seconds later, you're like, he could fall apart. It's crazy. Yeah. He's putting on a lipstick. Yeah. Feel my muscles. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that whole scene in the backseat of the car. I mean, the whole road trip is just, that's as terrifying as movies get. Yes. It's also really funny. It's again, like, it is. It's, it is so scary. Like the first time I saw it, I was scared to death. I posted about it earlier today, but you know, I was like Sean, I watched a million movies growing up way too young, but for whatever reason, I did not see this until I was like 18. I rented it. I don't know why I thought watching it close to midnight was a good idea, but I did. And like walking down the hall to go get water was suddenly the scariest proposition ever. I think I should, I turn on like every light. I used a flashlight and lights. Like it was crazy. I don't even know if I made it all the way to the kitchen. I think I just turned around. I'm like, you know what? I'm good. Yeah. Oh my God. But then the next time you watch it, you realize, you know, it's darkly funny and there's a lot going on. And also the Laura Dern character feels like she's in a different movie for part of it. And yeah, you kind of have to watch this a few times to exactly what you were saying. Like, what the hell did I just watch? For sure. Yeah. Well, what a hero's entrance, Laura Dern. <laughs> just like stepping in out the of the darkness. darkness. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this like <laughs> battle of <empty> fanfare. <laughs> yes. So- <laughs> You're like, who is this character? I mean, she's a neat girl. We'll give her that. She is a neat girl. <laughs> yeah. 
Girl, yeah. I mean, the tension in that film is unbearable. Like one of the, mm-hmm. the time I saw it at midnight with all the young people at the Coolidge, the part when like he misses the honks because he's flushing the toilet. Oh my god! And then there was this person in the back just going, "Oh, oh no!" <laughs> but yeah, I don't know where you get the. I mean, you know, why are there people like Frank in this world? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah where does this even come from you know like who, who comes up with this idea and then you see david lynch in an interview and he's so mild-mannered and you're like what on earth what is going on with this guy yes well i know like hopper always tells the story that like lynch wouldn't swear so mm-hmm. he was just like you know oh, when you say that word and he's like you mean fuck yeah the bad word when you say <laughs> the bad word <laughs> He's like, you wrote this fucking thing, David. (laughs) Yeah, I still think that's the, I mean, I know, you know, Mulholland Drive has its, although, you know, the Lynch stuff seems to, people seem to have pivoted to later in the career, but to me, this is the ultimate, this is the perfect Lynch. It's all of the obsessions and everything. And it's, and I think it's even more subversive because it's in a movie you can actually like normal people can follow. Yeah. Yeah. You can follow it for sure. There's there there's a plot. There's a plot. There. It's a more of a straightforward mystery. Yeah. With all that other extra group. All the other crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dean Stockwell with our Roy Orbison moment, which is like one of my favorite things ever in that movie. Yes. <laughs> Whenever my friend introduces a screening at the Coolidge, he has one of those lights and he comes up and turns the light on. <laughs> Just the whole gang of friends, like the Jack Nance and Brad Dorif, just one yes. up with all, <laughs> all those fat ladies. Like there's something going on in that apartment. It's the weirdest collection of people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean that's now I want to watch it again. S.A. Cosby. I think Hoosiers is probably his best performance. I think you Such know a good it, again. It's that same, yeah, it's that same energy, but dialed down, you know, mm-hmm. it's subdued, you know, but you get the feeling that his character has done a lot of bad stuff. He's had a really weird and wild life. Mm-hmm. And this moment with this team is his last moment for redemption. Um, Next up, Jed Ayers. Yeah, so uh, Hoosiers was probably the first thing um, that I saw. I think um, me too, yeah. And it... Uh, it you know, looking back on it now, I see, I mean, what a, what a year Dennis Hopper had, uh, what? Yeah. uh, 1986. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and uh, Hoosiers in 86. And then uh, River's Edge follows right after 87. I mean, those four films are probably in my top 10. Like if you asked me for top Dennis Hopper uh, performances, I'd probably, um, Probably that that's 40% of, of what I would choose probably right there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just showing what he's so good at and what he was so, you know, um, uh, how, how special uh, he was and that, that, that range to have, you know, be the devil in, in blue velvet and, um, you know, and such a sweet performance in Hoosiers the same year, be nominated for both such, you know, wildly different, uh, uh, versions, yeah, and 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 
I think River's Edge almost kind of marries the two, right? Uh, he's the uh, he, uh, it's a much darker film, obviously, than Hoosiers is, but it's um, you know he's 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 kind of sweet and he's and he's also you're leery of him uh, mm-hmm. throughout that one. But but Hoosiers, uh, you know Hoosiers made a huge. It was a huge film for me just because of the age I was. I was like eleven, and um, there's no personally. It is a absolutely daddy issues film um oh god yeah mm-hmm. you know um f- uh, and i mean the film is about them but uh but basketball movie for me means you know an association with my dad uh you know he's not a movie person but he's a basketball person and so mm-hmm. you know we went and saw i went and saw hoosiers a couple of times theatrically without him but uh i you know he did take me to see it one time and um and it, it was a big you know, he didn't take me to see a lot of movies, but uh, we saw that one. We were a basketball family. That's great. And, yeah, for me. My yeah, experience... so all the father-son stuff in there. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say my experience with Hoosiers is growing up in the 80s and 90s. I didn't see it theatrically. I would have been five or I can't remember. Maybe they took us, but I don't think so. Um, but seeing it in like grade school and middle school. And it was kind of the movie that teachers would put on male teachers, like your math, your science, your history teacher, mm-hmm. when they were having a day where who knows, they got into a fight with their wife or something happened at home with the kids, or they just show up and they're not in the, a mood to teach that day. You could kind of tell like something was going on and they would get one of those video carts and put on Hoosiers with the blinking 12 o'clock And boy, you know, they would always get choked up by the end of the movie and like need to leave the room and collect themselves. But you could never ask them about it because, you know, uh, these are proud guys. So I learned that lesson, especially in the Midwest, very young, like don't ask uh, (laughs) the men in your life unless you're close. You know, are you okay, buddy, when they start getting teary in Hoosiers? But yeah, I think this was my first exposure to Dennis Hopper. The first one that I really remember um, meaning something is probably like Red Rock West or Speed, where I equated the roles with this is Dennis Hopper, but Hoosiers would have been the first. Yeah. Yeah. And Hoosiers works so well, I think, because it is that, you know, baseline, pretty sweet, inspiring film, but it's carried by these three on-screen presences, adult presences that are very prickly. Uh, Gene mm-hmm. Hackman is not playing, you know, lovable and inspiring, really. And and Barbara Hershey is giving him, uh, you know, every bit as good as as uh, he gives. And and Dennis Hopper, um, you know, is 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 a pretty pretty fucked up guy. Uh, yeah. And 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 doesn't end in a you know great great spot. The the his experience with the team doesn't uh, doesn't dry him out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's an alcoholic. On track, and, you know, he ends yeah. the movie in a hospital. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but it, you know, I, I think it is, you know, you're tapping into your experience with the, the, the male teachers, I think, is probably fairly ubiquitous. Uh, you know, there was a, I think men and, and young boys are, 
attracted to to these kinds of stories, you know, whether it's a coach or, you know, like drill sergeant mm-hmm. movies or a whole other very similar genre where you have this uh, strong kind of, you know, gruff, angry, uh, even um, uh, antagonistic uh, paternal figure. Yes, <laughs> you good know, point. Kicking your ass and making you, you know, get in line and, and you, you know, it's either you and your siblings or it's you and your teammates have to kind of bond together to survive this guy. And, you know, there's, uh, and I don't want to say that my father was, uh, he, he wasn't abusive or, or you know, a, a bad parent or anything like that. But there is this sort of, did kind of, you know, have this, oh, he's the law. Um, mm-hmm. sort of a, a relationship with him. And, and, and he was the authority know, figure. Yeah. Yeah. And he was the one that got called in when mom couldn't handle it anymore. Right. Wait and, till your father and, gets home. Yep. Right. Right. And so, you know, I think there is something about guys my age had a similar relationship with Hoosiers and Full Metal Jacket, frankly. Um, you know, that the. Yeah, or Platoon. Yep. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I'm trying to. I'm not remembering Platoon's drill sergeant very well, but uh, the you know. Oh just no, that, I meant the the two, um, you know, that were like the angel and the devil figure sure. on his shoulders, kind of thing. But yeah, no, the drill sergeant and Full Metal Jacket, of course. Yeah. So you know, there, I think there is a a real um, there is something about uh, about boys, at least of my my age and, and my particular demographic, that were very attracted to these kinds of these kinds of films with this, this sort of, uh, figure, but, um, but Dennis Hopper is who I'm here to talk about. And, uh, I just, I love him in this film, especially now that I know who he is. Of course, I liked him in the movie. I remember my dad laughing at his delivery when he talks about almost scoring the winning goal, <laughs> you know, and he's out, uh, at, at the uh, at the diner with Gene Hackman, my dad laughed at that, and I remember that that made a, an impression on me. I, I looked for that line when I would watch it afterwards, and um, uh, yeah, he's just so so sweet and wounded, and at the same time volatile. Like you understand why he's not uh, why it's not okay for him his son to you know be around him and and um when he tells his father after the the game like you did good dad or good job dad and yeah. you can just see and it just kills you you're ready to start crying immediately but then you do see he is his own worst enemy or when he gets thrown out of the game later on and how devastating that is and you know it it's such a an emotional performance and i think also it's one that Dennis Hopper was reaching deep inside of his own, you know, inner demons. He's someone who had just gotten uh, cleaned up and sober a few years before this only. And so, you know, it was kind of his comeback era where he could sort of address what he had been doing those years and tap into it. And I think it does hit home. He has such a good rapport with Gene Hackman um yeah it's just a tremendous performance yeah and you know for both both hackman and hopper to have sort of a heyday in the 70s you know so many of of the the films that really stick out in their career came from the 70s and then there's a bit of a you know bit of a lull in the 80s um yeah of course hopper comes out 
1986 was such a strong, uh, st- strong year and, and strong couple of years there. Um, Last night, you texted me um, a couple of photos of a story you wrote called Who's Your Daddy? Do you want to tell everyone about that? Nah, so uh, not uh, Who's Your Daddy is a, a story. It's a it's a terrible gross disgusting story that that uh, i apologize for writing but it's um <laughs> it, it's definitely definitely about uh somebody with with father daddy issues you know and this very uptight um repressed uh person who 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 hoosiers among a couple of other things in the film um or in, in the story um uh, are one of the f- very few things that that kind of break through his his uh, emotional um constipation and and you know make him cry and he always has a really violent reaction after after words to uh you know crying freaks him out and anyway yeah. hoosiers as you as you uh, uh, so uh correctly said uh, is one of those films that really um does break through a lot of guys <laughs> a yeah. lot of very uh stoic you know macho uh, uh repressed uh, men it gets to him and yeah, you know they're like yeah. the second half of the film almost half of the movie there in the second part is 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 just montages of basketball yeah <laughs> which um you know it's a it's amazing it's not a long movie but they really pack mm-hmm. all the they kind of front load the thing with uh with drama and then you let it uh play out you know it, it's a reason why those those um those montages sequences uh have have a uh, emotional heft is because because of everything that came in the the front front half of the film but um yeah i guess i'm talking more about hoosiers than i am dennis hopper but uh yeah it was an important film to me and and certainly he he was important uh in it yeah absolutely and like i say i like it now even i like him in it now even more than than i would have as a kid without knowing who he was yeah and appreciating all of his other work in the context of um what he's done in this year or those few years for sure from dennis hopper interviews edited by nick dawson quote when you think of a filmmaker picture a guy with a cigar who has money and who will either produce a movie or won't well that guy with the cigar will make any kind of film if he thinks it'll make money whether it's a Black Dracula movie or Shaft or Goldfinger or Peckinpah's Wild Bunch. But those are all violent trips that leave everybody walking around thinking they're James Bond. And if they're not James Bond, everybody thinks they're John Wayne, that there's a good guy and a bad guy and that the good guy can do anything he wants to the bad guy, including hitting him in the face with an axe handle if he feels like it. If you see it in a movie, it must be okay, right? Then come the problems. If Duke Wayne can take the law into his own hands, why can't anybody else? Why can't Charles Manson? But if you really do some of the numbers Big Duke does in his films, you find out they're against the law, as they have to be. And I just think that our filmmakers have helped spread a mass mentality in which people honestly think there's nothing wrong with killing some guy if, say, you find out he's raped your wife. Forget the law. It's cool to kill him. 
And that's not just talk. The American movie audience is there. End quote. Next, Mitchell Beaupre. I mean, River's Edge is, I think, I mean, one of the most like accurate capturings of what like this age of teenagehood was, at least for like me and kind of my like I grew up in like rural Delaware and it really is like a that like go nowhere kind of, you know, existence where like you're just kind of like getting high and like blowing shit off with your friends like you don't take school seriously because you don't have the sense that you're like gonna get out or like get Mm. anywhere with your life and I think that River's Edge captures that essence in a way that a lot of movies about teenagehood are like afraid to because there isn't like too much uplift really with it it's teenage nihilism yeah 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 exactly it fits in a good realm with something like like over the edge like is a similar kind of vibe but there's not same screenwriter too right yeah mm -hmm, yeah yeah yeah, exactly exactly and so i think um hopper comes into the film as this like local drug dealer he's obviously like older than the main characters who are like chris van glover keanu reeves and like that that whole squad and he's just like the drug dealer that kind of lives in town. He's very kooky. Um, he's very idiosyncratic. He has a blow up doll as his girlfriend. Yep. He's like, he like, I like, I know this guy. Like I grew up like knowing like, this is the kind of guy that like my friends and I would get like weed from like the guy who like <laughs> wants to be friends with like the, the teenagers. The and teenagers. Like, yeah. yeah. And you like just kind of like hang out with him because you kind of have to because he's selling you weed but he like wants to smoke some of it with you kind of thing <laughs> but i think river's edge is exactly the thing that i was getting out of the beginning of our conversation where this is a character who could have been just like a real like looney tune just like you know really gross and like skeevy and not not human like it could have been just a joke but he's he's got such a humanity to him and as the movie's progressing, you see more and more of that humanity come out. Like he sees the direction that these kids are going in and he like his heart breaks for it. And you can feel that in him, even if he doesn't really know how to articulate it or like warn them, he feels like the way that I've described it before is he's like the ghost of Christmas future for these kids. That is a good way of putting it. Exactly. What they could become if, you know, they keep going this road that they're going and he knows that too. And he doesn't want them to go that way. And it's, it's such a sad performance. It is. He is the cautionary tale essentially. And he's also kind of realizing like, you know, what is wrong with these people or they don't have the moral compass, even though when you find out more about what he has done, um, Oh my God. But he feels that he, his moral compass is more um, set than his. And there's, again, there's pathos, there's, there's terror. There's a lot to this film. It's extremely unnerving. What's interesting about this film and Blue Velvet, I was saying um, when I was talking to Sean Burns about it, 
is these were two of my movies that I kind of used as like dating red flags. Just <laughs> sure. see, not that if a guy like likes the films, that's fine. But like how they talk about the movie, yeah. Essentially, mm-hmm. like are they thinking Frank Booth is the hero, or like are they, <laughs> um, or River's Edge? Are they how how do they see these teenagers? Is this a horror movie to them? Because it, yeah. it is a horror movie essentially. All of these, um, it was kind of something that was rooted in a reality, a real case where a a girl was murdered and like 13 or 15 of her classmates were taken to see the body or knew about it. And then it wasn't reported for like 48 hours or, you know, and there was just a sense of apathy or not wanting to narc on your friends or um, I think a disassociation. I also think again, with what we were saying about the the 60s and the hangover and one generation to the next, this is a film that has a character who was from that Vietnam era that like we fought for things, you know, we got involved. And these teenagers in the Reagan era um, don't really have a cause essentially, or maybe are a little spoiled because they're raised by boomers who, you know, did get the strap or that kind of thing. So it was a little (laughs) bit different. Um, child rearing and so we're not really sure what's going on um but yeah it's it's one generation of the next and hopper is sort of right in the center as, yeah. as the twisted uh ghost of christmas future yeah yeah he's exactly like how one generation turned into this new generation of like you said teenage yeah. nihilism and disassociation like these kids who just don't give a shit about anything to the point no. where they see the dead body of their friend and are just like okay like let's yeah. you know let's you know get high in our car and like that's yeah. that's it like it doesn't nothing matters to the point that your friend dying doesn't matter and like that's it's such a, a bummer of a place to be in, but it feels like that's the extension of, you can see Linda Mantha's character in Out of the Blue being yeah. exactly the characters in this movie. And yeah. yeah, Hopper is just such such a, a cautionary tale, but still having that that essence of humanity in him. I love the, the thing with like, him having a blow-up doll girlfriend could be played so easily as a joke, but yes. Hopper fully commits to the fact that this guy loves this girlfriend of his and like yeah, really it's like invested Lars in the relationship. Yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I wonder if, if uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah, I can't remember who wrote that. I remember that Craig Gillespie wrote it, but I wonder if the, the script for that was slightly influenced by seeing something <laughs> like River's Edge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he plays it totally real. And we, mm. we take... Um, that whole backstory with him in a consideration when he's talking about the blow up doll and it's just haunting. Yeah. 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 Next up, Jordan Harper. Uh, River's edge is fascinating to me because they make this really interesting choice, which most movies would not dare to say, well, we've got Dennis Hopper and we should (laughs) probably pair him with somebody for most of the film. Uh, who will play off of his big energy and his craziness. And so you, most people would counteract that, mm-hmm. put somebody else. They wouldn't put Crispin Glover in a movie with, with Dennis Hopper. <laughs> sort of have them have a crazy off, which in this movie, I don't know who wins. Like it's, they are both yeah. so outrageous. Crispin Glover is a performer who, you know, he's made a lot of very interesting artistic choices in his life, his his novels mm-hmm. and his records and the movies that I've never seen because he will only display them when he is in the room with them. Uh, yeah. You know, they're very odd and, and you know, 
his choices that he's made throughout his life. He's such a fascinating character. Um, and, and to place him in a room with somebody who in some like shallow ways, you would say reflect each other because again, Hopper is somebody who's willing to go very big and loud, but they put him in a movie where he has to yell, like kind of like chill out, man. Like, um, <laughs> yeah. You know, he, he actually turns out to almost and again, and I can't remember. I, let me pull up the, you know, Daniel Roebuck, who plays uh, John, the the killer in The River's mm-hmm. Edge, uh, also spends a lot of time with Hopper. And yes, even though Hopper is an eccentric and he's weird, he actually again he's so sympathetic. He's like knows he's being used a lot of the time. People just mm-hmm. go and hit him up for drugs because he's so lonely and and drug addled that he'll just give them to him. And he, you know, there's a scene where. Uh, I can't remember if it's Crispin Glover or who it is, who just kind of very nakedly asks him, you know, yeah. can you just give us some drugs? And, and, and he has this resignation in his voice when he agrees to do it. He's like, yeah, man, I got smoke or whatever he says. And, <laughs> um, I think that's, again, he's, he, there's the pathos to it, you know, the pathos. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, I think that's what's always underpinning him in a way that I would say, even though I love Crispin Glover and what he does, it's not there with Glover, who is so Mm -hmm. manic. And so, you know, the one thing I think we're really going to regret when all this is over is that we never got a chance to see Crispin Glover do like a Joker turn. Um, Because, boy, that'd be fun. Like, just (laughs) what what if we really got somebody with that kind of energy to play like a psychopath in some something other that I don't want to just start talking about Crispin Glover too much, but like, uh, you know, his turn in the Charlie's angels movies, which are, I was just going to say that I love him in those. Yes. The the second Charlie's angels movie is one of the most insane things that has ever been put on film. Yeah. And the ca- the whole Cape fear thing. It's crazy. I just like, you know, the opening scene is an homage to the drinking contest in Raiders of the Lost Ark that somehow there's suddenly a mechanical bull in there for Cameron Diaz to ride so that all of the, you know, Tibetan uh, cow herders can get horny and there's like a missile there. And that's just like the first five minutes that they ride. (laughs) I believe they ride a nuclear missile off a cliff at one point in that sequence. Um, And... And it's a giant Hollywood film, but it is so bizarre. And so their decision to put Crispin Glover in that film as a hair fetish person obsessed with Drew Barrymore, who is also a hitman, um, is so great. That movie is due for like a nice kind of camp slash not camp revival because it's truly insane. But that's um, I could go on. But, uh, you know, I think that movie, again, if there's a thing that works that makes river's edge work is that there's a lot of people in there that you have to feel for because it's the movie about um a you know a horrific act and a lot of people's feelings about it that are not the feelings you want them to have when they are presented with this horrific act and you know if it wasn't for keanu reeves and ioni sky and then i do also think dennis hopper is another person who has his own humanity in there where as opposed to like crispin glover or even uh joshua john miller who plays candle reeves little brother who kind of made a career of that era of playing nasty little guys you know because <laughs> um, he's also in near dark he's the the vampire who was turned in near dark when he's 12 oh the kid yeah yeah so he's that's gonna go the, after the sister yep yes so that's the same uh the same guy who plays uh, Keanu Reeves' little brother in, in River's Edge, and and he is a nasty little guy in that movie. 
Hey, he's actually a child, so I'm not like demeaning him by saying he's just a nasty little guy. And, <laughs> and you know, Crispin Glover's character is a nasty little guy, and John is such an awful, horrible, you know, true sociopath who who um, who literally kills a, his girlfriend mm-hmm. for no reason. No reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think there are other directors and other other ways of getting that movie made that would make it so nihilistic mm-hmm. and, and, and it's those little moments of human contact particularly through keanu reeves and ioni sky but also dennis hopper's weird relationship of, of trying to take care of john and shelter him and and that that again lends a humanity so it's interesting that he almost uh plays the straight man in uh mm-hmm. in, in that film even though he has like a romance with a mannequin and and yeah a sex doll yeah a sex doll yeah of course uh and um and, and so it's interesting. To, again, I think that's what he does so well is is to kind of anchor these giant emotions and, and and strange choices with like this real humanity that makes it all work. You know, strange choices and a humanity that makes it all work. I think that is the perfect note to end on for part two, which covered Dennis Hopper's blue period, his eighties period, where he got clean and sober, and turned in some iconic performances that I was happy to cover with my friends, and I hope you enjoyed listening to them. Next week, you will hear us discuss movies ranging from The Hotspot, which found Dennis Hopper in the director's seat again, to True Romance, Boiling Point, and Speed. So stay tuned, make sure you're subscribed, and we'll catch you next time. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research, equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.